Well, we're in the book of Galatians. You can grab a Bible over there if you don't have one. It's also printed in your worship guide. Galatians chapter 4. Edmond Dantes had been in a French prison for six years of a life sentence. And he had had enough. See, Edmond Dantes had been unjustly imprisoned. Framed by his supposed friends the day before his wedding. He had lost everything. The captaincy of his ship, his wealth, his career, his good name. And here he sat in a French prison. Alone. And up high in the stone in this French prison, one that had sat there before him in that cell, had carved in the stone, God will give me justice. And as Dantes saw that inscription every day, it built resentment inside of him. It just built anger. Until this day, the day he said, I am done with this. I am done with life. And he was considering taking his own life in that prison. Well, maybe you have heard this story, read the book, seen the movie of Alexander Dumas' famous book of the 19th century, The Count of Monte Cristo. And in the book, he vividly describes this man, Edmond Dantes, who is imprisoned, a slave with no hope. And throughout the book, Dumas is trying to show that Dantes is struggling with the idea of what it means to be free. And this morning, we are going to see another story. Paul is going to give us a story about freedom and slavery. And he's going to try to communicate to the churches in Galatia and to us, what does it mean to be free? Through this allegory and through this story. So let's find out together, shall we? What Paul says in Galatians about what it means and how we see if we are free. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of 
the free woman. The gospel of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, we're going through the book of Galatians. And the Galatians is really a book that kind of clearly describes what is the message of the gospel? What is the good news of Christianity? In very clear language. But the thing is, you might say, well, I know the message of the gospel. I've I've heard it time and time again. I've accepted it. I know it. Well, I think Paul thought the same thing of that church in Galatia. He thought they had heard it too. He had thought that they knew it. But we see they have been deceived. And the thing is, I think Paul is trying to say that you quickly forget what the good news is. You forget whether it's because of your human condition, entropy, our hearts, distractions around, that it seems like people that are Christians can move away from the freedom that they have in Christ back to slavery. And you see now in the end of Galatians, which we're getting to here, this kind of opens a new chapter. This is some chapters that explain the Christian life is one of freedom. The Christian life is one of of freedom. And this passage, I think specifically, is the preamble of freedom. <laughs> Explained through a historical analogy. And he's trying to answer, how do you know if you are free through this story? The preamble of freedom. Answering the question, how do you know if you are free? Well, Paul's been saying this whole time to the people in, in Galatia. He's been saying, you are children of the promise. You have been inherited sons and daughters of God. It is Christ plus nothing that brings you into that family. And this outside group from Jerusalem has been infiltrating the church in Galatia and has been telling them, well, no, that's not really how it works. These Judaizers, as they're called, are saying you need to be circumcised or you need to abide by the law. If you really want to be in the family of God, this is what you want you have to be able to do. And then Paul's going to answer that question right here in verse 21. It says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And here he is trying to answer the objection. If you think that the law is what justifies you, if you think the law is what frees you, If you think this is how you get into a right relationship with God, by abiding by the law, let's go to the law, shall we? And find out if that is really true. So if you didn't know, uh, many times when I hear the word law, I think of the Ten Commandments or um, some stipulations or uh, things that we have to abide that are in a legal code. But for the Jews uh, and for um, those that grew up in that kind of Jewish tradition, the law just wasn't specifically that. It referred to the Torah. So the first five books of the Bible. So whenever Paul says referring to the law, um, it could be these stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or the Exodus, those are all considered the law. And that is what Paul does. He goes back to this story that's probably very familiar to the people in the church, especially the Judaizers, a story that comes from the law about Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, and specifically the story about his two sons. 
Maybe you're familiar with the story, maybe not. I think I need to give a little bit of background about this story because he doesn't give a lot of detail about it. It might have been very familiar to them. But if you didn't know that God came to Abram, that was his name then first, to Abram and said, Abram, I promise you that you will have children that will be as great as the stars in the sky. And that would have been pretty perplexing for a man that was 100 years old and his wife was 90 and they had no kids. <laughs> like, really, God? You promise us that? And so God gives him that promise. And uh, I think Abraham and Sarah, well, you know, we'll fulfill the promise ourselves. And so Sarai says to Abraham, says, you know, why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar? And that way we will have kids. Um, let's just say that didn't create the best family dynamics uh, by sleeping with a servant and having a child, which she did, Ishmael. And that is the child that is described here, born of the flesh. But then God, again, continued to tell Abraham, he said, Abraham, listen, I promised to give Sarah a child. And he Come, God comes to Sarai and calls her then Sarah and says, Sarah, you will bear a child. His name will be Isaac. And, you know, she kind of laughs at Abraham and, and just doesn't even believe that's really going to happen. But here in her old age, in her sense of being barren, she has a child named Isaac. A child born of promise, of supernatural power. Not of their own ability, but only of God's. So here you see it says in verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Well, the son of the free woman, Sarah, was, and this is Isaac, was born through promise. Ishmael was born of, as NIV says, not flesh, but human effort, human striving. Well, Isaac was born of God's promise, only his provision, only something that God could do. <laughs> Here's Dantes sitting in this prison, ready to say, I'm going to end life. And then in the movie version, it gives this one. It's out from underneath the stone pops this man. In the bottom of his cell, he just pops out. And it's this friar called the Mad Friar in Dumas' book. And this friar is a little bit perplexed and frustrated because he thought he had been digging a hole from his cell to freedom. Well, instead, he just dug a hole to Dantes' cell. But from that place, the Mad Friar and Dantes form a friendship. And the friar teaches Dantes about literature and about, um, about what it means for culture and forgiveness and science and faith. And in the movie version, swordplay. That's not true in the book. But um, he, he gives him all, teaches him all these things. And above that, he tells Dantes about a hidden treasure on the island of Monte Cristo. This hidden treasure that this friar says, I'll probably never reach because I'm so old. Well, the story goes on and the friar, the priest dies. And from his death, 
Dantes finds freedom because they put him in a body bag and while they wait to go get him, Dantes sneaks over to his side, takes him out and puts himself in. And then when they take the body, which they think is the priest, it's Dantes, they carry him outside the prison and cast him off into the ocean where Dantes gets free and then goes and finds the treasure and finds an inheritance and a freedom and buys his own boat and finds his way. So from the death of the priest, Dantes finds freedom. Hear me. Paul is saying the story of Isaac is one of Israel. It's one of God's extreme grace in his promise. It's not of human effort that Israel was able to become a people. It was only by God's grace and his provision and his promise. The story of Dantes, the only way that Dantes, you became free is because the life of the priest and his inheritance for you. And now Paul is saying to the Christians in Galatia, You are free, not because of anything you have done. You have been free because the inheritance of Christ, God's promise, God's work, not your effort. The story of the Old Testament is now true today of the Christian now. Well, you might think, man, you're taking this analogy a little bit too far, Dan. Right, Uh, you know, this Count of Monte Cristo, this story. Well, I don't think I am because I think Paul says, I'm going to take it allegorically too. And that's what he does. He takes this story allegorically. And here I want to call your attention. I don't do this often uh, because I'm not much of a visual presentation kind of person. But I will show on page seven a little graph that might be helpful for you. And it's on the left-hand side. And this is kind of the images of mountains, of a covenant, of a city, of freedom and slavery that is being explained. So here on the left, it's Hagar and then her son, Ishmael. The Sinai covenant, earthly Jerusalem, lies by human effort and a slave. And that's what Paul explains here in his allegory. And what he is explaining is that through Hagar... That is an example of human effort. And he explains Mount Sinai is that's where the Ten Commandments came from, Mount Sinai. And he's saying those are a representation of the law. And it is also a representation of what's being taught in Jerusalem in his day, right then. It's saying these Judaizers who are coming from Jerusalem, they are saying that it is by abiding by the law that you are free. That you are saved. But no, Paul's saying no. That message is one of a message of Hagar. It is a message of living by human effort. and is a message of slavery. And then he contrasts it with Sarah. Sarah, his son, Isaac. And then it is a new covenant. Meaning that Christ fulfilled the Sinai covenant. Fulfilled the law. That is the promise we believe in. And then it is people of heavenly Jerusalem. Meaning a new people are rising. One of a new kingdom. Which probably is referring to a new heavens and a new earth. Which is heaven. And then these are people that live by promise. And these are people that are free. 
it's kind of hard to put into words how shocking this message for the people reading it was. Uh, You have to realize, for those Judaizers and for people that came from a Jewish background, to say that those people are sons of Ishmael (laughs) and not Isaac is brutal. Paul is saying, no, your father is not Isaac. Your father is Ishmael, which is the people of Arabia, the non-Israelites. That is who your true father is. And that's what Paul is saying to those people. That is crazy. That is like this. It is like saying to Wisconsinites who have experienced this crazy weather, right? Even in April, whatever it was yesterday, the snow and the sun coming at random times. We live for the promise, do we not? Right? We go through this pain because what's coming? Summer is coming. Our cabin, the lakes, whatever it might be, the fireflies, there is promise. And then it would be like telling Wisconsinites, well, you know what? You are not the people the promise of Wisconsin summer. Floridians are. What? We paid the price. We went through this winter. How are they the ones that get to inherit this summer? That's how brutal this message is. Trying to put it in terms that we would understand. But Paul is saying the true heirs are not ones that do it by human effort. But they're ones that live within the promise and provision and grace of God. He uses this passage from Isaiah 54. It's a passage when Israel is being conquered uh, by the Babylonians and being dragged off. And uh, they are just realizing that their way of life in Jerusalem is, is being torn. And they feel like they're barren. And this is the hope that uh, Isaiah gives. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. See, what he is saying is, those that have no land, like is described in Isaiah. Those who have no children, explaining what Sarah's situation is. People that say, there is nothing I can do to get an inheritance. Those are the people that will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are the people that he comes for. Those are the people that he will show his provision because that's the way he works. Not out of human effort, but out of his effort on the cross. Here's the thing. I think in our natural state, meaning our fallen state or our old nature, one, a apart from being unified with Christ, I think both serving God and rejecting God are identical. Bear with me here. In both cases, we seek to maintain independence from God by denying that we are so sinful that we need to be totally saved by grace. See, in both serving God And saying, oh yeah, God, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to obey the law. I'm going to do all those things. We can do that. And and in that sense, avoid actually talking to God and being in relationship with him. All it is, is the law. And it's identical 
with someone that says, oh, I don't need to even abide by the law. Both instances are chances of avoiding God's grace for us, our need for him to totally save us, for him to be able to put us in a right relationship. So let's play it out, shall we? I've shown another graph. Okay, two graphs in one week. It's a miracle. Okay. And for those engineers that are here, you like x-axes and y-axes. We like people that like that. So, so I have on the x-axes, which is horizontal, right? Right? And y-axes is, is this way. Okay, good. Okay. So um, on the x-axes is um, uh, the obedience to the law. So we have law obeying and law disobeying. And then on the y-axis, we have law relying, not law relying. Okay? And what I mean by that, the law relying, is that my justification, my right relationship with God is by abiding by the law. Okay? And law obeying is doing actions, not to get right relationship with God, because this is how I obey. This is what I do. So let's look at this and how freedom is not found in three of these quadrants. One, the bottom right-hand quadrant, which would be quadrant four. Am I right? Yes, I'm doing good. Okay. My sister-in-law, the math teacher, is giving me thumbs up, which is great. So uh, quadrant four, the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees are law-obeying. They're law-relying. They're probably, this is what the Judaizers were. They say, we are justified by the law, and they also do good things of the law. They are self-righteous. And you say, well, how are these people not free? Well, I think pharisaical people are not free because of this. Because when they are found out, which sometimes they fall short of the law, when they are criticized or maybe uh, judged of how they're acting, it just destroys them. Because their assurance is found in abiding by the law. And there is not freedom there because, oh man, I have to obey these rules. I have to do these things to be able to be in a right relationship with God. And we're always worried about what people might say or do or tell me. If I am off base there, then I am destroyed. Freedom is found in living the right way. Let's go to the quadrant to the left. Quadrant three, guilt-ridden. Here, these are people who say, yeah, I am justified by abiding by the law, but they don't do it. They're law disobeying. They say, well, I, I'm trying to live by the family code or the church code or trying to live by the way I'm supposed to, but I'm just not doing it. And for these people, they're not free because they are just guilt-ridden. I haven't lived up the way I'm supposed to. And maybe they stay on the periphery. Maybe that's you of church. I mean, I don't deserve to be at church. I don't deserve to be around other people because I can't live up to the way I'm supposed to. And sometimes those kind of people just give up. Or they say, you know, something went wrong in my life. I... I'm done with this Christian thing. And then we move up to the relativist. This is someone saying, oh, the law does not justify me. And I don't even obey the laws that I'm supposed to. I'm, you know, this person says, I am truly free, right? I live the way I want to. 
I tried to explain this earlier in the confession of sin. As much as people say, I live the way I want to, they can be enslaved by things. <laughs> Smoking or, or, or drinking or, or being successful. They set up laws from themselves, whether they realize it or not, of what they are supposed to do. And those things enslave them. I think sometimes what's really hard to see in this category, and I think it kind of, uh, kind of describes our society more and more, is that the relativist actually quickly goes down to the Pharisee. <laughs> because they say, you know, truly if you are free, you are tolerant of anyone and whatever choices they make. But then anyone that doesn't abide by that, then they're self-righteous about that themselves. I think we've seen that in politics recently. But ponder that. Think about that. As much as people say, oh, I don't abide by some law or something to free me, they are self-righteous in their own way. But then there is this quadrant of gospel life, of gospel freedom. That the law is not what justifies me. Christ is what justifies me. And then I live a life of obedience out of the gratitude of what Christ has done for me. Yeah, I might be criticized about my life, but I'm not going to go into Pharisee thinking because I believe that Christ is what justifies me. I'm not going to feel guilt-ridden even if I fall short because I know that Christ is the one that has saved me. And really, if I really want to be free, it's when I'm united with him in my creator. That's when I know who I am and what I am created for. That is true freedom. Think about these quadrants a little bit. I'm going to go back to them in a second. But here at the end of the passage, here he says, Now you brothers, verse 28, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. And here uh, Paul is referring to the way that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And it's the same way referring to what's happening with the Judaizers who are infiltrating the church in Galatia and saying those that are not circumcised, those of you not abiding by law, they are persecuting and saying, you need to do more. You need to do this to be in a right relationship with God. John Stott says this. is very fitting. The persecution of the true church is not always by the world who are strangers but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. The greatest enemies of evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. You see, the Pharisees can say to us, you know what, you, you call yourself a Christian? But you still struggle with that? The guilt-ridden people can say to us, you know, I tried that Christian thing and I really failed at it. Why are you still trying? You'll never measure up. Just stop. And the relativists can say to us, you don't really live in freedom. You know, God's telling you and religion's telling you, you got to do this or do that. That's not 
real freedom? Truthfully, if we're honest with ourselves, we might float through those categories ourselves. We might be the Pharisee at times. We might be the guilt-ridden at times. We might be the relativist at times. Rather than living in freedom. Here's the interesting thing about the Count of Monte Cristo. Edmund is free, right? He's got all this gold. He now becomes himself, calls himself the Count of Monte Cristo. He has his own boat. His Wife that was to be comes back to him. He is free. He's got everything he could ask for. But instead of living like Isaac, he lives like a slave, like Ishmael. And this is what he says in his book, especially to Mercedes, his wife. Do not rob me of my hatred. It is all I have left. Do not rob me of my hatred. It is all I have left. See, Edmund had already been redeemed. But he could not live in that freedom. I think for the majority of you here, you know the gospel message, right? I think most of you here would say, yes, I am justified by Christ alone. You'd say that willingly. Yes, it is only by Christ that I am saved. But my feeling is, at least I can speak for myself, many times we live like slaves and orphans, not like sons and daughters. And we might understand that legal relationship with God, that justification from him, but we don't realize him as our father that cares for us and loves us and wants relationship with us. And we live like Dantes. Do not rob me. Do not rob me of my desire for success. Do not rob me of my desire to look good. Do not rob me of my anger towards this person. Do not rob me of my security. Do not rob me of my money. Do not rob me of how I want my kids to be. Don't rob me of these things. And what do they do? They enslave us. Dantes had an inheritance. He was free from jail. He had all those things, but he didn't live in freedom. Instead, he continued to live as a slave. Christian, I want you to hear this, please. Verse 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Cast out your idols. Cast out that slavery that is in you. Oh, I've got to be a success. I've got to look good. I've got to have this bitterness towards this person. I have to have a house. I have to have security. I've got to have money in my 401k. My kids have got to act this way. Cast that out. So that you can say this. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, 
but of the free woman. And 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you live in freedom? How do you know? How do you know if you are free? You know you are free when your lives are not born of human effort, but they're born of the promise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to live in your inheritance, but I so often do not. I live by striving. I live by effort. I live by what I can attain here rather than by living in unity with you. God, help us as a church to live in freedom. To know that there is no guilt. That we can take criticism. That we can be free when we are truly in unity with you. Just pray these things in your son's name. Amen.